immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. This episode is sponsored by Spatial, the immersive audio software that gives a new dimension to sound. Spatial gives creators the tools to create interactive soundscapes using our powerful 3D offering tool. The software modernizes traditional channel-based audio by rethinking how we hear and feel immersive experiences anywhere. To find out more, go to www.spatiallink.com. Hello and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 72. With me, your host, Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. Hello, Monica. How are you? Hello. Oh, I'm doing good. How are you doing today, Oliver? It's our last recording in 2022. It's also a last recording in our current studio where I'm sitting right now by myself because it's 6 p.m. Uh, in London. Uh, we'll be moving in a couple of days and uh, a lot of changes on the horizon. Last interview, you didn't join us. How have you been? Um, I have been good. I have been busy as well. Um, again, getting kind of going in this new uh, role uh, for my new company, but that's been going really well. And um, yeah, having having some continuing to have some fun spatial audio conversations uh, with other people kind of outside of things. So it's been it's been good. Our guest today, Kasson Kruker. Kasson has spent past 30 years focusing on his career and creative musical passions on the intersection of audio and technology. After graduating from Berklee College of Music in 1995, Kasson has worked in the video game industry as audio director and project director on games like Guitar Hero, Rock Band, and Dance Central for Harmonics at Microsoft, creating spatial audio experiences for HoloLens. And he's currently at THX as the director of product development for the spatial audio initiatives. He's an electronic musician, composer and mixing engineer. Having released 20 albums and touring throughout North America and Europe, his current creative passions involve creating interactive music experiences with immersive audio technologies for virtual reality. Kasson, welcome to the podcast. Very glad to be here. Hi, Oliver. Hi, Monica. Hello. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Kasson, whereabouts are you tuning in from? I am in Seattle, Washington, on the West Coast of the United States. Ah, right. So it's uh, very close to the Microsoft HQ uh, in Redmond. It is indeed, actually. That's why I moved out here about 10 years ago uh, to work at Microsoft, uh, spent a little time there, uh, and then, uh, but have been grounded here for, yeah, for the last 10 years. It's a beautiful area, Seattle. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so it's very nice up here. A little dreary, but oh, the summers are beautiful. All right. Well, let's go all the way to the beginning. And I'd like to hear how did you get into the sound and music to begin with? Sure, absolutely. Um, I grew up in a very musical family. Uh, my mom was a music teacher, both at the elementary school and then later on at the high school level. In fact, she was my piano teacher uh, for quite a while. And then my teacher, music teacher at school for uh, eight years, I think. So a little weird having your mom be your music teacher. Um, but uh, yeah, my whole family was musical. They went to music college. Um, and so immediately at a young age, I was surrounded by instruments and music and concerts. Um, remember very fondly, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and the Cleveland Orchestra in the States is one of the premier orchestras and really got a chance to get exposed to some amazing music there and uh, began learning instruments, right? Classically trained on piano 
cello, a little bit later on on pipe organ, uh, which was probably my favorite instrument to play. I never got very good at it, um, but really love the pipe organ because you can just push all the pedals all the way down, and it's (laughs) so immersive and loud, and of course, you're in like an amazing acoustic space, and so I just I have a lot of fond memories of that. Um, but I think I grew tired after a while. I was never very good at uh, forcing myself or getting into the mindset of rehearsing and practicing the instrument. Um, so I don't think becoming an actual performer, um, you know, a classically trained pianist, was in it for me. And then in high school, of course, I got exposed to the synthesizer. And so there was this moment where, you know, my whole life just sort of like musically switched into the electronic domain. I was listening to a lot of synth bands at that time. This was the late 80s. So it was this amazing moment, you know, where bands like Depeche Mode and Erasure, New Order, Information Society uh, were all like releasing some of their best albums. They were touring. I saw so many shows and just really got hooked on electronic music. And so even before the end of high school, I knew that I wanted to continue uh, my studies in music and learn more about it. And so at that point in the early 90s, um, Berkeley was really, I think it was Berkeley and Cal Arts were sort of the two colleges I was most interested in. Uh, and in, and ended up at Berkeley um, doing uh, music synthesis and MP&E. And it, you know, it was a very interesting time for audio because it was really at the moment where digital audio was becoming a thing. Uh, I think at that point, the only thing I was doing on a computer was sequencing MIDI. Uh, I think that was in Master Tracks Pro back in the day. Um, but when I was at school, that was the moment when you know DigiDesign started to release um, some software, and uh, you know it was it was a great moment to sort of be at the crux of the move from analog to digital um, and getting to learn both of those things. And so, uh, yeah, in college, I got really bitten by electronic music, even more so, and then was learning the production side of things and mixing, acoustics, um, and uh, knew I wanted to make a career of it. And so um, since then, it's just been an amazing journey moving through some different industries, um, and most of them, sort of the common thread of getting into all of this has been uh, my love and interest of the intersection of not just music and technology, but experiences, interactive experiences built around that, and specifically music itself. And so one of the things I learned at Harmonics, where I was the audio director for a while and project director, as you mentioned, on games like Guitar Hero and Rock Band, was getting to see non-musicians um, just you know, average people who loved music but who didn't know how to play it or how to perform it or anything get to sort of inhabit that mind space for a little bit um, and feel like they were actual rock stars or on stage. And it really was the moment where you could tell that music fans, oh, I'm a fan of music, they were turned from average fans of music into super fans because of getting to interact with music in a completely different way. Um, it was sort of a transformative moment. Um, and so that, and my focus now is more on spatial audio and an immersive audio, but it's really built around audio experiences that really try to, um, open people's eyes to, um, you know, what it is like to interact with music or make music. So it's always been very music focused for me, um, so yeah, so so long background of uh, just being involved in music my whole life. That's really exciting. And then I guess kind of how did that um, fascination move into you becoming interested in um, learning about spatial audio? Yeah, spatial audio. It, 
is is definitely on the newer side of my uh, career and, and interests. I mean, I had been aware of spatial audio for many years. I remember back in the 1990s, I think, when I started making video games. Um, I think you know, I was I had all these sound blaster cards, and there was always the little uh, spatial audio experience that they would sort of build into their software. You know, with the like bees buzzing around your head or the helicopter flying around, and always thought it was really fascinating. I definitely didn't understand the technology. I think at that point, I had done almost no research on it. So I was just sort of playing around with it. But honestly, it felt really, it felt really like a, just a novel to me, uh, a novelty. There was no sort of direct application to the music I was making or the sounds I was doing for, the sound design I was doing for video games at the time. Um, the technology was so early that, you know, it, there, computers were not ready to run spatial audio in real time at that point. And so I was sort of aware of it, but never really was directly applying it to anything uh, in my you know, creative space. Um, but I began to follow it more seriously. Um, I had some friends working on it in the academic space. And so every now and then they would sort of check in and let me know what was getting worked on. So I would say through the the 90s and aughts, um, I wasn't paying a lot of attention to spatial audio. So it, it was really when I joined uh, Microsoft about 10 years ago, uh, sort of unexpectedly, I was moving past the video game side of my career and was looking for something new. And I had a lot of connections at Microsoft um, because of working on video games. And they were, um, my contacts were there, were like, well, we're working on this, you know, this crazy secret project. Um, are you willing to essentially move across the country? I was in Boston at the time. Are you willing to move across the country and take a job here? It'll be audio technology, but we can't tell you what it is. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, you've piqued my interest. And of course, this was the same team that had uh, researched uh, and invented the Kinect cameras, um, the Kinect 1 and Kinect 2 for the Xbox games. And so I was really intrigued and and did that. I actually moved across the country, got a job, worked at Microsoft, and did not know what I was going to work on until my first day. And after, you know, orientation and getting into it, they're like, well, we're working on, uh, you know, this wearable holographic computer, and um, we have the spatial audio technology, and uh, we sort of want you to spearhead it and really um, work with the teams to integrate it and build experiences around it. And so... Monica, as you mentioned, yeah, um, at Microsoft Research, such amazing facilities there, and you know their team on spatial audio, uh, Ivan Tashev and Hannes Gomper, David Johnston, got to work with all of those uh, gentlemen on their PHRTF and HRTF, and find ways to integrate it into Hololens. Um, it was when I got to be a part of my first PHRTF study. And I really, you know, that's where I saw firsthand how far spatial audio technology had come and that there were actually devices that it could run on with low latency um, and relatively high quality. And so it was really exciting to work with that team, um, integrate the HRTF technology into the main audio stack for HoloLens. Um, and start to build these experiences around it. So few people there had heard HRTF. They didn't understand it. <laughs> They're like, what's this What's this long acronym? And then you explain the acronym, and they still don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. And it wasn't until, you know, you put the headset on and you give them a demo, and then you see their eyes open and probably, hopefully, their ears open um, to the, you know, the amazing possibility. So that was that was sort of my integration into spatial audio. And sort of on the flip side of that, I had also gotten into surround recording uh, and mixing, um, particularly quadraphonic. I'm not sure why I got bitten specifically by quadraphonic. Um, 
I guess maybe it's because I never owned sort of a proper 5.1 system. And I was, and from a mixing point of view, I was always skeptical about subwoofers. Um, and so, but I always had extra speakers uh, lying around. So in the late 2000s, um, I got into creating some four channel quad mixes of albums and learning how to mix that properly. Um, and then ultimately that led into uh, uh, finding out how to do live performances in multi-channel. And so a few years ago, I started doing that with, uh, I learned how to play the Japanese koto, which is a, a stringed sort of harp instrument. And I paired it with a Eurorack system and figured out how to do a quadraphonic experience around that, uh, including using ultrasonic speakers, which I had gotten exposed to at Microsoft also, which are really amazing because they're like these, you know, intense beam forming speakers where you can sort of point it at a surface and it literally sounds like the sound is coming from that exact point in space. So I got sort of really inter interested and in, into the idea of performing in surround sound as well. So I sort of view discrete surround mixing and performance and spatial audio sort of all together, um, just because they, you know, it's a sort of a transformative way to listen to music or sound design or perform. Brilliant. Fast forward, your current role is the director of product development at THX. THX is a bit of a mystery company. Well, to me personally, a lot of people are familiar with the iconic Sonic logo, which sounds absolutely brilliant still, by the way. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I consider the Deep Note to be one of the most iconic pieces of synthesizer music ever released. Can you tell us a little bit about your current role and what do you do on a regular basis? Can you talk about a little bit about the THX as a company and what kind of technologies uh, you guys have been involved with lately? Yeah, THX has had a very interesting journey over the last 40 years um, and has really sort of um, transformed uh, from what it originally was into what it is now. Um, I joined a little over a year ago, but the, you know the history goes all the way back to George Lucas and the cinema days, and him and others in his circle being uh, you know concerned and let down by the quality of audio in theaters. Um, and specifically him being interested in figuring out how to um, more standardize that experience and really, you know, level up the fidelity of that experience so that it could match what he was doing in the visual domain. Um, and that really turned into a whole business of THX, working with cinemas around the world um, to you know, to uh, make sure that their qualities were as high as possible so that you never had a bad experience whenever you went into the cinema. And that um, then transformed into uh, doing the same thing for home theater. And so as the home theater business in the 80s and 90s really took off, um, THX started to be involved in the certification side of things, right? Getting equipment, loudspeakers, and, and uh, AV receivers from different companies, putting them through their paces, uh, working with those companies to improve the audio quality on those, and then essentially certifying them. And so that was largely THX's business um, for quite a while. And then... Uh, uh, and then there, you know, there have been many changes over the years, different uh, leadership coming in. And, uh, and this is again before my time, but I think about six or seven years ago, uh, the group at THX really started to take a hard look at, at other areas that were happening in audio, um, that they felt they could, you know, make an impact in, uh, in a similar way. Um, you know, elevating the audio experience, um, 
uh, crafting uh, and aiming towards higher fidelity audio. And spatial audio was the thing that uh, they really latched onto and were excited about. And so a large part of the company now is very focused on our spatial audio initiatives um, in a few different domains. Um, And in my mind, it sort of happens in two areas. There's sort of the rendering at the moment that the audio is being generated, and then there's the post-rendering aspect, the idea of taking stereo or 5.1 or 7.1 audio and binauralizing it for those who are using headphones or speaker bars. Um, and my focus is particularly, um, especially given my background in uh, spatial audio and HRTF for Microsoft, um, joining THX and working on THX spatial audio, uh, very specifically for PCs and headphones. Um, I don't know, I personally am not really involved a great deal in the speaker bar side of things, um, but on the headphone side, that's that's sort of my sweet spot. And so I'm involved in a few different areas there. Um, one of the areas is that I'm essentially uh, a golden ears, <laughs> which is always a weird term, um, but I'm essentially you know one of the few people there who can uh, do a lot of critical listening. I can evaluate a, an audio process. I can offer up ways to improve on it. If there is a tuning tool, um, a software-based tuning tool, I can get in there and I can you know work with all the parameters, work with a specific piece of hardware, and try to create the best sounding audio for it. Um, and so I do a lot of yeah, so a lot of work on PC based and headphones. Um, but one of the other things I'm also involved in is we do have game uh, engine plugins for uh, the spatial audio rendering, and those are for Unity, uh, Wise, and Unreal engines. Um, and that's the area that I love the most because, of course, we're rendering the spatial audio right there um, in the game engine. Of course, this is specifically for games, but you can do app development um, on those platforms as well. Um, and those plugins uh, are focused uh, on both sides of the spatial audio fence, both with object-based binauralization um, as well as ambisonic, um, including very high-order ambisonic. And so those plugins um, can handle both of those systems. And so uh, I've been doing a lot of work uh, with those and with game companies, uh, finding ways to integrate it in, figure out what's the right use for the spatial audio. I think, you know, in past uh, immersive audio podcasts. I've listened to people talk about, um, you know, that you can't just apply this to everything. So a lot of my working with game companies is targeting the right sounds, what's best for the spatial audio rendering, and of course, there's all the concerns about performance and optimization and things like that. So I'm involved in the game audio plugins, and then on the creative side, and I'm always excited when there's a creative angle. Um, is doing spatial audio mixes. Um, and so one of the things, um, even before I just uh, had just started at THX, I was working on a project with them for one of my favorite 80s synth bands, uh, Information Society, and they were releasing an album which came out in 2021, and they wanted to um, do something special for that album. And so I mixed it in THX Spatial Audio for them. And that was a really fun process to work with the band, uh, get their stems, and uh, mix it all and produce it uh, in spatial audio and release it um, as an accompanying album to the normal stereo version. And um, that album's called Odd Fellows. And that was a, a really fun experience. I had, you know, I had been a fan and of the spatial audio approach uh, that they had been working on for many years. And one of the things that really shined to me was the, the uh, approach to the spatial audio being physics-based 
Um, and so it's a real understanding of the virtual space that they're creating with, uh, you know, the different kinds of wall materials and occlusion and the, and the real time, uh, reflections. And so that was a thing that, that was exciting to me because I knew that when bringing that and mixing music, I would have some very, uh, high fidelity, um, rendering solutions to use. And uh, so I worked on that album, Odd Fellows. And then when I joined THX, one of my projects this last year was working with the streaming platform Cobuzz to uh, do three spatial audio mixes uh, for some artists, uh, Circuit Deyou, Dinosaur Jr., and Anat Cohen. And, uh, and you can hear those over on the Cobuzz platform. And it's really interesting to me, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit later on, uh, it, mixing uh, music specifically for spatial audio um, has been sort of one of my main passions now and uh, probably one of the things I work on most at THX. Well, that's really cool. Actually, I have Cobas. Uh, we use that in conjunction with Rune to run all of our uh, audio at home. So oh, I'll, nice. have to, uh -huh. I'll have to check that out. Is it a binaural render or is it a... It's a binaural render. Actually, there's um there's one other aspect I could talk about. So uh, another area that I do work on um, is also specifically for spatial audio is a, a program we now have called Tune by THX, and I'm actually really excited about this um, because this allows us to work with um, partner companies. And and over the years, I think we've now worked with over 400 different products. And those are mostly focused on certification. Um, and But on the tuning side with this new program, specifically for spatial audio, there are a lot of companies who are starting to bring this technology in. Um, as you know, there's been a lot of buzz lately, and especially in the uh, world of earbuds and over-the-ear headphones, we're finally reaching the, the inflection point where the processing can actually do decent spatial audio, the latency is getting uh, decently low, and, the, and you know, I think the big aspect also is the inclusion of the IMU, the head tracking sensors on there. And so a lot of companies starting to figure out how to bring spatial audio over to their hardware for the first time. Uh, and we've been getting to partner with them to help with the tuning process. And so in particular, uh, we just uh, formed a partnership with the Indian consumer electronic company Boat. Um, and they have a wide range of uh, consumer electronic audio hardware, uh, gaming headsets, earbuds, um, and headphones, and it's sort of the first time they're bringing spatial audio over into that domain. And so I can work with them and their tuning tools to basically evaluate the spatial audio and tune it to be as high quality as possible. And it's a very late stage moment, right? So I can't go back to them and, and say like, oh, well, we need to change the speakers and, you know, or the hardware or the, the industrial design, but I can go in and using the DSP tools, the software tools to really transform and tune that spatial audio experience specifically for the device, um, which is really critical when you try to just have a one-size-fits-all solution for all your hardware. It's never going to work. And so I really like the fact that we can work on a specific product and tune it specifically for that uh, product itself. So that's sort of like the other, uh, probably the last piece of what I focus on at THX. Our hot topic today is something I wanted to explore for a while. I just needed a right guest uh, to talk to. And uh, so what is it? It's spatial audio for interactive music 
VR applications. It's a lot harder than it sounds on the surface. So turning to you, Kassen, and you've recently worked on a couple of music projects uh, or VR experiences. Uh, one of them is called Morph and another one, Saturnine. Could you please talk about these projects in more detail? And can we unpack on how did you approach it using music with spatial audio to create something immersive and engaging? Sure, absolutely. So before I sort of dive into the backstory, um, essentially uh, these are free, two free VR apps. Um, they were released on the Meta platform, so you can use them for the the original Oculus Rift, uh, the uh, Meta Quest, and the uh, Meta Quest Two. It doesn't really run super well on the Quest, but on the Quest Two, it it runs great. Uh, and these are were released via App Lab, and they're just free apps. Um, and they're not games. They're essentially interactive music experiences where you can go in, you're sort of um, dropped in these sort of beautiful, abstract, uh, geometric environments, and there are all these uh, objects floating around you. It's sort of like you're in a, you're inside sort of a, a anti-gravity, uh, you know, sort of floating around in space, and all these little objects are floating around you, and each one of those objects is a track of music from a song. Um, or STEM, as some people call it, and they're all floating around you. And uh, and when they get close to you, they're louder. When they get far away, they get quieter. And of course, it's all being rendered in real time, object based spatial audio. And so it, they really sound like they're all around you. So these objects might drift in front of you, above you, below you. Some are moving fast. Some are moving slow. And so you could actually sort of stand there or sit there and do nothing, and this sort of lush, experimental, ambient uh, music uh, piece happens all around you. But you can then start to interact with it. You can gr- you can reach out with your hands and point at objects and grab them, and you can bring those closer towards you or push them farther away, which means you're basically mixing the song in real time. You can grab an object and throw it so it starts moving really fast around the space that you're in. Or you can lock it in space so you, it will always... Uh, sound like where it's uh, you know locked in in three dimensional coordinates, um, and then there is all these spatial aspects to them where these different objects interact with each other. So I might have one object to my left that is a snare drum from a song, and another object to my right might be a field recording that I captured. And as those two get close to each other, they realize that they're actually close, and they start to calculate their distance to each other, and they start to actually do real-time DSP on each other. So as the field recording approaches the snare drum, it applies, let's say a really long delay feedback to the snare drum. And as the snare drum approaches the field recording, it will apply a low-pass filter in real-time. And so as they get closer and closer together, those real-time DSB effects, which are also getting um, spatialized as well, get louder and louder. And then as those objects drift apart from each other, the DSP goes back to sort of its its base state. So there's basically this whole real-time mixing and interactive ecosystem that is then all, all being rendered in 360 spatial audio around you. So that's sort of the, the app itself. Um, and it's a single player. It's not a multiplayer thing. It's not a game or anything like that. It's just, I really felt like the... VR, it was so focused on games that it just, I was really missing the art. There wasn't a lot of art. Um, You know, I love going to art galleries. You get to enter this space. It's quiet. 
Um, sometimes there's not a lot of people around and you really feel like you're there. It's just you and the art and you get to spend some time, you know, really focused on the art itself. And I felt that VR was lacking that. And so I sort of built these as almost musical art galleries where each gallery or environment you, know, you get to go into is for a specific song. It has specific art that's tailored for that song. And you get to experience this music in a whole new way. And and the benefit is that it's all spatial and you know immersive, and you really feel like you're inside of it. So that's sort of the high level of the app itself. Um, the journey to get to that app, um, and these were basically passion projects. After I left Microsoft and before starting at THX, I had a few years of working freelance, um, and this is where I really um, taught myself Unity, started to work with some other Unity engineers to build these experiences up. But I think what is interesting, and going back to talking earlier about um, music and, and my journey into music, is that I really felt that the way we make music are so defined by our tools, um, and if you and it goes all the way back, right? You think about a composer like Bach, who didn't really have access to a piano, right? The piano didn't exist. He was writing his music for harpsichord and and pipe organ, and and as the tools evolve, the music evolves. And so, as an electronic music uh, musician and producer, I'm constantly looking at the tools I'm using. And one of the things I was excited about was when when the sort of whole Eurorack modular synth um, community took off. That was a really moment, interesting moment where essentially new instruments were being invented. Um, that you that had these sort of infinite possibilities, and and especially for people making abstract, experimental, and ambient music, Eurorack was such a just an eye opening moment where suddenly it was sort of infinite possibilities. But what's interesting to me is if you look at the end of the tool chain, we're all in the same exact tools, right? We're 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 composing in interesting experimental tools, but then we're you know we end up in you know, Pro Tools or Logic or, or what have you. And the limitations of the DAW and the mixing moment suddenly constrains us all back down to these exact same set of tools. And I found that to be very frustrating, right? You, you know, that that my my mixing experience of the song after, you know, laboring for a month over a mix is essentially to basically hit a space bar and just render my file. It just was really boring to me, right? And and the tools I have are volume and pan. Now, of course, you know, I have all the different other, you know, I have all the DSP tools, you know, the, the cool effects, and those are interesting. But essentially, it's like, well, I can make this louder, and I can move it to my left speaker. And I just, that was so boring to me. And so the inception of these music apps was really, I wanted to throw away the DAW, and I wanted to mix my music in a completely different kind of ecosystem that had completely different um, possibility space to it. And one of the biggest ones was that it's no longer just left and right, and it's no longer just this arbitrary concept of loudness. I wanted to mix my music like we like we hear music in the real world. If something is close to you, it's loud. If it's really far away from you, it's quiet and you don't hear it. And as it moves between being far away and close, its acoustic parameters and its, you know, fidelity changes based on the the, the environment and the acoustics of the environment you're in. And I wanted to mix music in that kind of domain, not just an arbitrary sense of, you know, left speaker to right speaker and and loud and soft. 
Um, and the other aspect was that there are just not enough happy accidents in art, um, especially when you're using a doll. Like I said, you just sort of hit play. It's never going to make a mistake. Well, unless it crashes. Um, and you're always going to get essentially the same, the same mix. And so in the same way that I was getting a lot of um, happy accidents using Eurorack um, systems, I wanted to have happy accidents over in the mixing uh domain as well. And so basically I built this Unity mixing environment so that I could bring all of my audio in as individual multi-tracks, um, individual tracks, but then mix it, you know, in th in spatial audio, um, almost like a like, almost like a, a conductor with an orchestra, but instead of just like looking at the different groups of instruments and saying, oh, play a little bit louder, a little bit quieter, I can actually make them move around. I can be like, hey, violins, I want you all to move behind me about 30 meters and then run around the room as fast as possible. <laughs> and so I built this, you know, this environment where it was sort of like I'm the conductor um, and I have all this interesting control over, you know, what's happening with the different tracks of audio. But in addition, they also have a mind of their own. Um, because these objects are all floating around on their own, um, and I, can, I only have two hands, right? So I can only sort of interact with two tracks of music at any given time. All the other tracks are doing all sorts of different things. And so immediately I was getting this amazing, you know, happy accidents of audio in this domain. Um, so that was really the inception was I just, I wanted a new way to mix music. I didn't want to be... I use Digital Performer as my main DAW, and I just didn't want to be in a DAW to mix. I wanted it to be more performative. So in, in this experience, like a conductor, I'm sort of standing up and I'm looking all around me and I'm grabbing audio and it's just, I'm moving my body during the mix process. And, and if I don't capture what I'm doing in real time, when I try to go back and do it again, I'll never get the same thing. So in my apps, when you go in, you're never gonna hear the same mix twice because it's constantly evolving. And I just, I really like that. And so as I finished creating the experience for myself to do mixing in, it just became clear that I wanted other people <laughs> to experience this same thing. And so that's, that's a, that was the point where I was like, oh, this should really be an app for everybody. And, oh, wow, it looks really horrible. I really need to find some amazing artists <laughs> to work with to actually make this look, you know, beautiful and, and interactive in the visual sense. Um, as well as the audible sense. And so, yeah, it was it, it was um, a really interesting experience to build this. And I'm hoping, I, and I've released two now. So Morph was the first one that came out in 2021, and Saturnine was released about six months ago. Um, and I'm hoping to do more of these. Um, I get to partner with other bands, and it's really great. Like when I reach out to these artists, um, in Morph, I got to work with um, two of my favorite ambient artists, uh, Christopher Willits, who is in San Francisco, and he runs um, Envelope, which is the performance space that does all the ambisonic um, surround spatial mixing. Uh, and Taylor Dupree, um, who works uh, as a, an amazing mastering engineer and runs 12K Records. And both of them um, submitted tracks to the Morph experience. And I was you know, a huge fan of their music already, but to get to interact with their music in this environment is just... It, it's so transformative to me. And again, when I mentioned working at Harmonix on uh, rhythm action games, it's the moment that I was a fan of Christopher Willits, but then I became a super fan because I got to interact with his music in a completely sort of unexpected way. And so getting to work with artists and explain to them how to prep their music for this, for the Morph uh, platform has been really interesting. And I'm very excited to release more in the future.
it's it's super fascinating for me and and uh, there's a number of things you're doing in a unique way um and you're certainly doing it properly to kind of to make sense in the context of VR but do you mind just unpacking a little bit more about the tool sets that you utilized uh, creating these projects specifically what kind of binaural renderer you prefer to use or spatializer um maybe you talked about some interesting um cross uh, manipulations through dsp processing yes um and actually you'll be surprised to hear that essentially everything for those two projects was just done in native unity's audio system um now you can't. I can't say I was very happy with it. <laughs> um, the Unity's audio engine, and I mean, Unity is a fantastic platform for prototyping and building VR experiences. From but from an audio point of view, it's pretty lacking, <laughs> um, pretty bare bones. Um, I, and I'll set sort of the spatial audio rendering aside for a moment. Um, and but I investigated uh, looking at uh, FMOD. Uh, Wise was just it's. To, I was sort of uh, I had never really used these programs before. I had never used Unity before, so there was a lot of ramp up of learning how to use Unity, uh, working with Unity developers, uh, programmers to understand what I could do in there, and teaching myself um, certain elements of things. And, and I looked at FMOD, um, but ultimately decided that it would be safer and easier to work inside just Unity's native audio. Um, and just deal with the limitations. One of the things I have found over the years in making music is that placing limitations on your creativity can sometimes be very beneficial. It's not always what you want, but it does force you to be realistic and and take advantage uh, to the full extent of what is there. Um, And so from a rendering point of view in Unity, it was not great. But one of the things it does do well was it did maintain synchronization of audio. And that's a big thing for me was making sure that all these tracks of audio stayed in sync with one another. I couldn't have them sort of drifting away um, in synchronization over time. And and Unity uh, keeps that very solid. Um, and their their effects were okay. Um, they have one of the worst reverbs I've ever heard. Um, but, you know, they've got the standard suite of, you know, delays and resonant filters and things of that nature. Um, for the spatial audio, I did spend a lot more time trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, and I evaluated... Uh, of course, the Oculus Spatializer, which was sort of the default for knowing that I was going to be over on the Oculus platform. I looked at that, um, you know, Google Resonance. Um, I looked at a few of the more of the ones you had to license, but they were very expensive. Um, and at that point, because I was freelance and this was a passion, pro- a self-funded passion project. Um, I was being very careful about budget and ultimately decided I was going to need to just go with a free solution. Um, and really just, I, I ended up with the Oculus Spatializer, um, which is fine um, from a spatialization point of view, you know, feeling like the object is really out of my head um, and uh, diegetic and out in space. I, it, I think it works really well. It, from a fidelity and spectral quality, it's heavily colored, and I was not super happy about that, um, especially because I was, you know, applying this to music elements. Um, you know, I was losing some of the high fidelity aspects or um, with certain instruments that had very resonant qualities, specifically piano uh, was a, was an instrument that did not fare super well uh, with the Oculus Spatializer. But I did some re-EQing on top of things to buy back, you know, a little bit of the 
uh, a little bit of the fidelity that I was losing through the spatial audio. Um, but w- probably one of the biggest reasons I ended up with the spatializer as well was that it seemed to handle a lot of objects in motion with the least number of artifacts. Um, one of the things I knew was going to happen was I was going to have certain objects, certain sound objects moving around the space relatively quickly. Um, and I did not want to have Doppler on them because Doppler would obviously do some pitch changing to them and some possibly like, and it would affect the synchronization of that track. And so when I evaluated a bunch of other um, spatial audio solutions, there were just too many artifacts, right? I was hearing um, th- like the movement was not being interpolated very smoothly, or I could hear jumps as it sort of moved between different um zones in the HRTF dome and really ended up with the Oculus Spatial Editor because it had the least number of artifacts. Um, it was one of the most heavily colored uh, of them all, but it was really, I, I, I needed one that, I just didn't want to have pops and ticks and and other issues in the audio. So that's where I ended up. Now, what's interesting was, you know, I, I sort of made all these decisions probably back in 2016, um, and there were not a lot of options back then, and now there are a lot of options. And and you know, of course, now I work at THX, and we 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 offer and make these plugins. <laughs> I would certainly be using our plugins to do it. Uh, you know, if I do a future version of Morph, um, because now I have access to a, a high fidelity plugin that I that I know inside and out. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges. Um, you know. I think a lot of spatial audio people face when working with VR is just the limitations of the tool sets. But, and, you know, I think it's exciting that, um, yeah, there's more and more tool sets coming out that, you know, do solve that problem. You know, the other constraint is, right, this is, this is essentially running on a high-end cell phone, right? The, the Quest 2 is not a, a super powerful piece of hardware, and where it is powerful, it's in generating graphics, right? Because it's not plugged into uh, you know a PC to do the rendering, and so I have to hit seventy two frames per second, and so that puts a lot of constraints on how much DSP processing and you know how much bandwidth I'm giving to all the rend- you know spatial rendering on that device. Well, I know I kind of want to jump back a little bit. Um, I, I have a follow up question as well to your your uh, answer from this previous question. Um, uh, you know, just kind of saying, you know, it's like I, I love sort of, you know, how you're talking about kind of the spatial, you know, mixing and thinking about this, you know, concept of mixing audio spatially in without, you know, using just like, a, you know, a, a fader or a mouse click because, you know, and that, that that's something I think about a lot as far as like how when, you know, we're mixing something and in 3D, we're using all this kind of like 2D sort of and two-dimensional like mixing tool sets. And, you know, that concept of, yeah, how do we actually like get into um, being able to mix in these um, immersive spaces? And so, I mean, I've done a lot of work with like the Mimu gloves or I've even built some of my own controllers for kind of being able to control the positioning of sound. Um, and I guess I'm kind of interested in like how how you found like as far as like being able to kind of like use your body. Um, and I'm assuming you're kind of and maybe you can clarify you're using the like, um, you know, the the handsets to be able to kind of control the positioning um, of the sound in space, if I'm correct. Yeah. So, you know, like kind of, yeah, what's that experience like and how does that change your own relationship to the music? A Morph platform for VR mixing just uses the the touch controllers. And 
Uh, and of course, you know those are being you know mapped in three dimensional space, and they've got uh, t- they've got a joystick on each one and different uh, selection of buttons. And so one of the things I wanted to do was explore what I could do with those handsets, you know, those controllers immediately, um, especially with rotational things, right? With the fact that you could sort of grab an object. And I experimented with you know once you grab an object, if you rotate your hand left and right, you could change the resonant filter on it. Um, I wanted to be able to change audio aspects depending on how fast you threw an object away from you, um, and which is a really physical thing right? to be able to grab this thing and throw it and or gently sort of nudge it off into space and get an audio uh, change based on that. It was really interesting to experiment with that. Um, honestly, I, I wish I could had done a little bit more. A lot of my focus was on how to move the objects around in space that were not close to you. So a lot of the... Um, uh, prototyping I did with the controllers was essentially like, well, how can I sort of emit a, uh, a laser pointer out into space so I could point at an object, know that I'm actually intersecting with it, and then be able to grab it and manipulate that. So I had done a, like a lot of work um, to be able to move the objects around in space. And so I'm hoping actually with a future version of Morph to get more into what you're talking about, which is actually using the two controllers themselves as actual um, extensions of the musical experience. Um, I think at that point, it's probably, and I think one of the reasons I didn't do it, again, going back to using uh, the native Unity audio, there was not a lot to do there. And so I think probably what I would do in a future version is get onto a platform like Wise or FMOD that had a larger suite of DSP opportunities um, and much uh, better audio processing so that I could do some more of these interactions. Because like, yeah, like you said, it, it's a whole new ballgame when you can be in a three-dimensional space and interact with audio in 3D rather than this sort of, you know, uh, GUI-based <laughs> 2 dimensional DAW experience. Um, and uh, another thing I experimented with that was really fun was the ability to sort of virtualize the size of the space you're in. And basically, um, I would sort of, I had these different geometric rooms that you can be in. You can be in sort of like a hypercube or uh, a dodecahedron or a pyramid, or whatever. And I could see a sort of a small representation of the room and I could grab that object with my controllers and I could just spread the controllers apart and make the room larger or smaller. And then when you go into that room, you're getting a completely different set of virtual acoustics um, from that space. And so it's sort of interacting with the space in 3D and then interacting with the sound objects in three-dimensional space just offers up a completely different way about thinking of music, especially knowing that the it's like the real world where, you know, when it's close to you, it's loud, and when it's far away, it's quiet or you don't hear it at all. It really gives you a great amount of control over the mix in real time. I'd be excited to to integrate your controllers into the experience. We should we should make that happen. <laughs> that, that that sounds like a fun project. I'd enjoy that. Well, especially the ability to um, attach OSC um, into VR, I think would open up a great amount of opportunity to allow alternate controllers um, or hardware to interact with the uh, VR experience in real time. I actually just did a spatial audio meetup with Hugo Laren, and he was talking about the ADM OSC kind of initiative that um, you know they're they're helping put together. Um, uh, again, another side note is is that something THX has explored at all? Uh, not as of right now, uh, but uh, we we have uh, interesting things in the works to be cagey. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, 
moving on. Um, you know, when we're working with spatial audio in a VR application, one of, you know, the, the um, you know, I think parts of that process is being able to pair the audio with visual graphics and interactions. Um, could you kind of take us through your process from a musical idea to kind of fully working with um, a visual um, and audio experience within a VR space? Humans uh, are very, we have all these like sensory inputs, but it's when they work together in tandem and synchrony that you really get an experience that feels very grounded. I've had a lot of spatial audio experiences over the years that had no visual component and they were interesting, but you know, we're very visual beings. And so the moment there's a visual aspect, it really solidifies in your mind that it's, that it's real. It, it really grounds to me the spatial audio experience when there's an accompanying visual that sort of helps lock that in space. Um, and so going into this mixing environment uh, in Unity uh, and in VR, I knew that I needed to sort of pay close attention to how I was going to represent the visuals. Um, and I had an interesting choice um, to make, um, which was around how much information the visuals would give me at any given time. And so going back to my idea that in a DAW, I wanted to get away from that, Right in a DAW, I'm sitting there and I've got all these, I got a mixing board in front of me and, you know, and each one of them are labeled and I know exactly what it is, right? I can just read the label and say like, this is guitar, this is piano, this is a pulsar drum machine, et cetera. And I could be like, oh, I just have to, all I have to do is grab this fader that's labeled piano and I can make the piano louder. And one of the things I did was very intentional was I did not want to always know what was going on. And because if I know what's going on, I have a great deal of control. And one of the things I was trying to do with the pro project was relinquish control so that I could have more unexpected things happen. So probably the biggest visual decision I made was to create four uh, groups of visual objects that would re represent um, general groups of sounds. So I would let's say I would bring in a song and if it's an ambient song, I would look at all the tracks in the song and say, okay, well, there's a number of field recording tracks. This one uses piano. Um, this one also uses Japanese kodo. And there's some modular Euro rack type things. And I would be like, okay, well, there's like seven piano tracks and three field recording tracks and two kodo tracks and, you know, six modular synth tracks. And so every song I tried to group in, if I could, it wasn't always perfect, but I tried to group them into four sort of primary sound categories, usually based on the instrument type. Um, um, sometimes I did it based on the spectral content. So I might say, oh, okay, well, this group one is going to be all my low frequency sounds, et cetera. But essentially I tried to take every song and group them into four categories. And then I created four different visual objects to represent those categories. So there was the sort of, uh, morphing, evolving asteroid object. There was this very geometric sort of, uh, atom object that sort of looked like it had a nucleus and atoms orbiting around it. There was the object that was, they sort of looked like fins or wings of a bird. It had this sort of weird avian quality to it. Um, and then there was uh, the uh, the last one was, I think it was some other primitive geometric shape. So they sort of ranged in, in shapes. And then each one had a very distinctive color. So, you know, there was like the green group. So there was the green asteroids and the red avian wings and the white atoms and the blue sort of geodesic uh, designs. And so 
Then I would attach those sound groups to each one of those objects. So all the field recordings would be in one group. And so then what I could do is I could look around, I could enter the space, and I could look around, I could be like, okay, I see four of the green asteroids and six of the red avian wings, and I could, right, I could see these groups floating around. But I wouldn't know exactly what it was until I interacted with it. And that was a very intentional uh, design choice that I made so that I wouldn't always know what was going on. Right? I could look at an object and say, well, I'm pretty sure that this is the group of field recordings, but I can't remember if this is the like the thunderstorm recording or if this object getting, you know, over to the right of me is actually the birds chirping. And so I would basically reach out and grab the birds chirping that was pretty far away from me and bring it close to me. And then suddenly I would hear it. I'd be like, oh, I hear the birds. Oh, okay, that's birds. And it was that unexpected aspect that was really intentional so that I so that I basically relinquished some control and allowed the mix system sort of to take over and help create the sonic experience, um, right? I could have labeled them all with little floating text labels to tell me exactly what every single object, sound object was, but I was very intentional that I didn't want to do it. I really wanted to abstract it away so that it would involve me to experiment right it would it's on me to sort of reach out and grab different objects and so i would normally what i would do is i would sort of reach out and grab two arbitrary objects from different groups that might not be near me using the joysticks and the controllers i would bring them close to me and then because they had the spatial distance DSP processing aspect, I could almost play with the two objects, right? I could bring them closer together and hear the effects on them. I could bring them apart. I could swing them around my head so that I got some really intense, you know, 360 spatial audio feeling to them. And essentially then I would get bored of them and I would let go and they would sort of float off in space and I would start to interact with two new sounds. And so the visual design was really built to reinforce that experimental, um, un, you know, the, the experimental aspect of not always knowing what's going on and sort of giving up control, which is difficult, right, for musicians. Like, we like having control over every single nuance of our sound. And so even when I was working with other artists, I had to explain to them, they're like, well, what's it going to sound like? And I said, I don't know. I mean, you know what your tracks sound like. Imagine somebody coming in and mixing your song a million times in a million different ways. That's what it's going to sound like. You know, in some cases, you might they might go in and never hear the main instrument that was always like the loudest in your mix. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> it was always interesting to get the artist's uh, to wrap their head around the concept that uh, it wasn't going to sound like their original. Very cool. Having done so much interesting work in this field specifically, with a bit more hindsight, what would you say are key technical and creative challenges still in front of us, as well as the opportunities that we can yet to explore and push further, specifically when it comes to delivering music in 3D in VR? Sure. Yeah, and you know, and in the world of spatial audio, music, in particular, in particular, has its own very unique challenges. Um, you know, when I th when I think about spatial audio in the real world, 
I, I rarely think about music unless I'm thinking about being at a performance. Normally, you know, I think about the fact that I can hear cars in the background to my left and I can hear my cat, my cat's meowing upstairs above me. And I just think about the, 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 the world of sound around me, usually from an environmental point of view. And then when I start to think about music specifically, of course, I'm immediately brought into the concept of remembering, you know, performances and going here in concerts and hearing the musicians on stage and hearing the acoustics of the room I'm in. And it's been a real challenge, probably one of the biggest challenges of working on Morph and music in VR is that the two don't always play nice together, right? The, the quality of music um, it's the nature of its fidelity and the sounds and the type of sounds, and then knowing where spatial audio technology is right now, they don't always play nice. You know, I think I mentioned this with the, you know, the fact that I was using the Oculus Spatializer was that for certain instruments, it just did not sound very good. Um, and so I think that one thing I'll be very excited about in the future is a, a greater understanding of the relationship between the specifically the HRTFs or the PHRTFs and how they can uh, and how they interact with audio either that they actually make it sound better and more realistic and more natural or on the flip side that they are degrading you know or altering the sound of the instrument in a in a negative or less than pleasing way. And so I'm hoping that uh, that work will be done to start to understand what HRTFs and, and or what spatial rendering techniques work well for what aspects of music. You know, one of the worst parts of, of Morph, I think, was all the low-frequency content. It just, you know, in the real world, low-frequency content just doesn't really spatialize, right? Coming out of speakers, it's just sort of all around us. It, it's everywhere, um, and, you know, I was trying to figure out how to do that in VR, and the options were not great. And so I think it's one of the aspects in the morph that I was sort of the least pleased with. Um, and in the future, like I think if I did a, you know, a future version of that application, I would spend a great, meal, great deal more time investigating um, cut more customized rendering solutions for the different instruments. So I would reach in and be like, oh, I want to use this HRTF um, or this processing approach for all of my acoustic instruments. I'm going to use a different approach for all of the low-frequency instruments, and I'm going to use a third approach for all of my drums or high-frequency, you know, trans high-frequency transient content, and really have that. And I did not have that. I, right, I had a one-size-fits-all tool. So. I'm really looking forward to that being an uh, an, evol an improvement and evolution over time, specifically for for VR. And then, of course, the other one is just trying to be as performant as possible. Um, you know, uh, and and I do believe we're finally at an inflection point where the hardware is really starting to get good enough to do high quality rendering, but it's still not there to do, say, really high quality room reflections, for instance, right? I think, you know, work on the direct path HRTF has come a long way, but, you know, in Morph, I wasn't able to customize the room reflections to the exact geometric dimensions of the space I was in. Um, and, and especially, what if that space changes? So I know a lot, of, and it was interesting going to Avar, because, you know, a lot of people in the research and academic space are doing lots of amazing research on 
um, how sound propagates through these acoustic environments and interacts with the different surfaces and materials and objects, and what happens if those rooms are changing dynamically and the sound source is moving around. So I'm really most excited about that space and the fact that the hardware is <laughs> creeping towards getting to the point where it can actually render that, um, you know, render that in real time with as low latency as possible. Yeah, I know those are all um, challenges I think we all face as we're kind of using the the spatial audio to really its full extent, um, and especially from a creative standpoint. And, um, you know, yeah, with the, the musical space, like I, you know, I think that, you know, there's always this, um, to me, a lot of it is about like just composing for, you know, space and thinking about what that means and, you know, and asking this question of why are you spatializing this? And as you were saying, it's like most musicians are very particular about their tone and, you know, and that's not a bad thing. That's exactly what, you know, like as a mix engineer, it's all about finding, you know, like helping the musician achieve the tone and the sound that really represents their music. And if we're putting a spatial audio algorithm on it that, you know, or spatial audio, you know, that degrades that tonality, it's not enhancing the music. It's, you know, degrading it. And, you know, and yeah, it's like, how do we think about, you know, moving forward, you know, the different, you know, and again, I think one thing, you know, you mentioned is the being able to have these different, uh, you use different HRTFs, you know, on different, you know, things is kind of how you look at it for the future. And I think that's an important, you know, piece. And as we continue to develop in the, you know, spatial audio scene is, you know, how do we continue to build more open tool sets where we're not locked into just one spatialization algorithm because each spatialization algorithm does certain things better than another. And it's good to have, I, I see it as like kind of just choosing an EQ or choosing, you know, a different microphone it creates a different sound. Yeah, I'm very excited. Like, I really feel like we're at this inflection point where we're moving from these one-size-fits-all rendering solutions to having a lot more customization where, you, yeah, where you can really sort of pick and choose what is going to be best for your creative project and, and the attributes and the sounds, uh, you know, that are in that project. Yeah, so for the future, I guess, you know, what, what do you think lies ahead for spatial audio technology and how can um, it help create and empower immersive experiences. I mean, we touched on this a little bit, but, um, you know, kind of how would you see this kind of moving forward and how people are going to experience this in the future? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I think the work being done with in the research side and the academic side of thing is making uh, great strides um, in understanding, um, you know, uh, acoustics and psychoacoustics and how the spatial audio sort of plays into those ecosystems. And and coming out of AVAR, I always get very energized in hearing what's what's happening on that side of the fence. But it's always a long journey, right, from research and academia over into actual, you know, actually productizing um, and turning this technology into features that average listeners and average users um, can interact with. And that's the real challenge there um, because you're giving um, users control over, you know, a pretty technical um, audio solution and how do you give them the controls that they understand, right? I think people are used to like, um, you know, uh, ba bass boost and treble boost and loudness and things like that, but they don't understand under the hood that, you know, what they're hearing is a complicated, you know, algorithmic DRC 
uh, approach happening. And so, I, you know, I, the thing I'm most interested in and what we're working on, you know, very keenly at THX is, is that intersection about having average listeners interacting with pretty technical audio solutions and how do you give them the control and understanding about what to do. So I, I'm focused on that. The thing I think I'm, I'm probably most excited about is just that we're so close to being able to run a lot of this stuff on embedded hardware that's battery-driven, right? Seeing earbuds that you can put inside your ears that have these head trackers built into them, um, and that the you know everything's getting smaller and more powerful to me is just very exciting because because those are the that's the tools and the technology that allows us to run um, really great software on top of it, and then that software turns into other experiences, um, and especially uh, in particular with earbuds. Um, having the you know the gyros and the head trackers means that not only can you do things you know like aver- you know like normal head tracking and things like that. There's so many interesting experiences that you could be built on top of that because it's almost like you're wearing a little HR device. Now, of course, you don't have necessarily have a screen in front of you, but it means that you could be listening to an interactive music mix and you could start moving your body around in interesting ways to affect that mix, right? And again, it gets you up instead of just sort of sitting there and not really you know, it's sort of a passive lean back experience that suddenly you're an interactive part of that experience. And and that really resonates with me because, again, it's the moment where the, the moment you get somebody interacting with your content rather than just absorbing your content, I really think it opens up their eyes and ears and gets them excited about it and, yeah, turns them into, uh, turns them into super fans. Awesome. Um, so I guess... Somewhat on that note, um, what uh, are the THX uh, plugins available anywhere for people to download and play with? They are. For the game audio side of things, uh, you can reach out to me, and I think there will be some uh, links on the uh, Immersive Audio Podcast uh, website, I believe. Um, so yeah, you can reach out to me and our game audio plugins are available. There, we have trials of those and we have um, demos where you can um, try those things out. Um, so yeah, right now we're basically focused on the uh, the creatives we're focused on are for uh, the game engine side of things. But again, you, because they do run in Unity and Unreal, you can use them for app. If you're doing your app development, for instance, in Unity, you can try those things out there. Um, and then the rest of our uh, solutions are really uh, focused more on um, PC gaming headsets or things. So they're, they're, that's really not for the creative group and more for the consumer side of things. Last year, I spoke at Game SoundCon um, uh, about the plugins. And so, yep, these are available and um, you can yeah, try them out in your games. And again, right there, it's the kind of thing where, you know, you have to figure out what it's good for, right? What kind of game are you making or experience are you making? And because, um, you know, you don't always want to apply it to all your sounds. And so it's always a fun experiment to sort of see what what sounds benefit the most from spatial audio rendering. So what is the best way to find out more about yourself and the work you do? Sure. A few different ways. Um, so I think, as you mentioned way back at the beginning of the podcast, uh, I am a musician. I've been releasing music through a number of bands over the years. Um, probably the uh, band I'm most well-known for is a synth-pop band called Freeze Pop that had uh, some music in Guitar Hero and Rock Band back in the day. Um, and actually, they still, I'm not a part of the band anymore, but they still release albums. Uh, my main project is called Symbion Project. And so, of course, I have a band camp page. Um, that's a S-Y-M-B-I-O-N project, Symbion Project. 
at Bandcamp. Um, but then I think, you know, all you have to do is just sort of Google my name and you will find out about all my various projects, um, including uh, the Morph VR project, Saturnine VR project, which are both free for uh, the MetaQuest 2 and Oculus Rift. Kassen, can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career, your journey? Mm, one piece of advice. Wow. Okay, that's tricky. <laughs> you can give more than one if you're feeling generous. Uh, no, because I'll probably go then rant for quite a while about it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this I'm gonna keep this concise, focused on one. I would say probably you know probably for me, the best was trying to strike the right balance between being both technical and creative. My, my background is really on the creative side of things. Um, and over the years, I have got pulled closer and closer to sort of the technical side of things. Um, and it has been a very, it's been a, an active challenge uh, and an exciting challenge to figure out how to strike the right balance. Um, part of it, I think, has been surrounding myself with people who inhabit um, on, on that spectrum being around some people who are purely technologists or purely creatives um, and sort of inhabiting that space with them and collaborating with them, um, I think has helped strike that balance. Um, it's, I think for me, it's when you're able to marry the two together um, for, you know, like you're trying to solve a creative problem um, or maybe build a better instrument. Um, and for me, it's a lot been about trying to facilitate an artistic experience for other people to explore that I really have to, you know, try to balance both being technical and creative. Um, and I think staying grounded in both has really, for me, led to some amazing opportunities. It's sort of created a skill set for me that has allowed me to work in the video game industry, work on spatial audio at THX, uh, do passion projects. And then I feel like if I was sort of too far in either domain, I wouldn't have had those opportunities. So I would sort of express to all the technical people out there to um, get in touch with your creative side and for all the creative people to really, you know, surround yourself uh, uh, and sort of build up the technical side and see if you can strike the right balance there. Because I guess for me and, and hopefully others, um, operating in both domains and fusing them together can lead to some really interesting opportunities for whatever you want to focus on in, in that space of being both creative and technical. It's hard. I mean, I, there was a moment where I was at a company and they said, um, you need to go and get a computer science degree, right? My, I don't have a PhD. I don't even have a master's. I can't write. I can edit JSON files, <laughs> right? So I am really on the creative side of things, but I have been uh, been able to be very close to a lot of technical people and learn from them over the years. And so for me, it's being a creative person that's trying to be technical. But it can go, you know, it can go both ways. It can be a technical person who's trying to become more creative. So I think striking that balance is always. Always a challenge uh, and an adventure. I was just going to say that, that that one really resonated with me. <laughs> Brilliant. Kassen, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Oliver, Monica. It's really great. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash Immersive Audio Podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. 
Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit immersiveaudiopodcast.com to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.